Let's now open our Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2, as we continue our study of this strange and wonderful book. And once you have it, let's stand up together if you are able. We've done a lot of standing. Our gift to you this Father's Day is the gift of exercise. We stand not out of empty ritual. We stand to honor the word of God. We stand to remind ourselves that we are under the authority of God and of his word. And so now let's read the word of the Lord together. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she had been brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do rejoice in you. We rejoice in the good gift you have given to us of your word, this living, supernatural, inerrant word from God that we can read your word and we hear the voice of our God by your spirit. It's your spirit working through your word that transforms us. It's, it's that which brought us from death to life. It's that which gives sight to blind eyes. I pray this morning that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and through us, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified, that our eyes would be lifted to him, that, our, that we would be transformed more into the likeness of our Savior. And I pray for myself as I... Proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, today's text, although it's, it's short for how, how, how we've been approaching Esther so far in, in big chunks, it is really essential to the arc of the whole story of what's going on in the book of Esther. Every detail in this story orchestrated sovereignly by God. We see that throughout the book of Esther. We will call attention to some of that this morning. And we understand here that God is sovereign over all things. There's, there's no piece of this grand story that God, the author, has not written and he has written them for his good purposes. That's not just true of Esther. It's true of all of history. It's true, brothers and sisters, of our lives. Every detail sovereignly written by God for the good of his people, for his own glory. So just to get a running start as, as we get into this passage, I want to remind us of what's going on in this story, of where we're at in 605 BC, Judah was conquered by Babylon. Babylon, that great enemy of God. People are carried away into captivity. Actually, they were carried away in, in two waves. The first in 597, the second in 587. When the temple was destroyed, the palace was destroyed. But then in 539, the Babylons themselves were conquered. They were conquered by the Persian Empire, who overtook them and in the final stage, bloodlessly, brilliantly overtook them. But in doing so, in the Persians overtaking Babylon, what they inherited in that package was the Jews and all the other exiles that, that Babylon had claimed and carried off to be their own. And Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, issued a decree. His decree was, the exiles, you can all go home. You can return to your homes, you can return to your own languages, you can return to the worship of your gods. We own you, by the way, still. You need to pay taxes to us. But apart from that, appoint your own leaders, speak your own languages, worship your own gods, rebuild your cities. 
that the Babylonians destroyed. He didn't force them to go, but he encouraged them to go. He wanted them to go back home. It's part of why Cyrus the Great is called Cyrus the Great. He was exceedingly smart in the way he led and ruled. And he didn't just encourage them. He said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide military protection for you on the way home. I'm going to oversee the rebuilding of your cities. I'm going to give you the supplies you need to do it. We read about some of that in Nehemiah. So Esther takes place about 15, 50 years after this. After Cyrus has said, go home. I'll give you everything you need to rebuild. Return to your homes and to the worship of your gods. Fifty years later, we come to this story of Esther. And in Esther, we are situated in the citadel of Susa. That's the capital city. It's actually the, the, the royal part of the capital city of the Persian Empire. And so here's what that means. All the Jews that we're going to meet in this story, namely Esther and Mordecai, but all the Jews we find in Susa have made a choice. And the choice they have made is to rebel against God. To live in Persia as Persians. They have had now five decades to go back to Jerusalem. God had sent prophets to them. Prophets to tell them this message. Go back home. Return to the worship of Yahweh. God had now sent pagan kings. Not only Cyrus, but Xerxes, the king we see in this story, both with the same message. Go back home. We will take care of you. We will help you. Pay. We will help pay for this. After all these years though, of pagan rule, many of the Jews had simply lost their identity. They had been thoroughly paganized. They had lost hope in the promises of God. They had lost their faith in the one true God. They lost their heritage. They had lost their history They had forgotten the true story. They had forgotten reality. So we're five decades into this decree that encourages them to return home, but they think it's better to be living under the pagan king than it is to return to the theocratic rule of God in Jerusalem. Now we'll stay here with this guy. So that's... The two Jews we meet in this story, Mordecai and Esther, they're two of these Jews. They've chosen to remain in Babylon. Now, we have plenty of reason to be compassionate on them. It's easy to look back in history and to look at some of these things and to read scriptures and see where people did the wrong thing and go, I would never have made such a choice. Well, the answer is we probably would have done worse than anybody we read about. We have plenty of reason to be compassionate, but they see have lost all their family. All of they have got are each other. These two cousins, one older, one younger, and everybody else is gone except for them. In, in the ancient world, that is disastrous. That's as, as disastrous as it gets to lose all your support, all your family. But even as we can have some understanding and some compassion, we, we see pretty quickly in this story, these two are not heroes. They're sinners. They're the children of sinners. That's why they're there. They're completely surrounded by sinners in the city of Susa. And in all of that, God is at work in and through their lives, in and through their choices, in and through their past. He is doing a work of redemption. God is at work for the good of his people. When I say for his people, I don't just mean the Jews, as we see in the story of Esther. God is at work for the good of all of his people. This is a story with massive ramifications for all of God's people for all of time. But but God is at work in everything, bringing about his good for his people and ultimately his own glory. And so as we come into this story, in chapter 1, we begin with this opulent party that The most descriptive language in the whole Old Testament, except for the temple, is this story. The author is painting this picture of just excess. This drunken party that King Ahasuerus is hosting has been going on for six months and seven days. He's showing off, we're told, the the splendor of his royal glory. And on the last day of this second seven-day party... 
He sends seven officials to his wife, Vashti. He's got one more possession he would like to show off. And Vashti's hosting her own party in a different location. And he sends seven officials to him, to her, to command her to leave her party and to come to his, to parade her around for the lustful entertainment of these drunken men of the city. And the queen says to him, no. She, she does not respond to his command to come. And so like any reasonable husband, Ahasuerus leaves his party. He goes to his wife and he, and he speaks to her tenderly. And he says, have I upset you in some way? What's going on? Is, there, is this not a good time? No, that's not what he does. It tells us he became enraged and his anger burned inside of him. Instant fury. So he goes now to seven more advisors, more foolish than the last. And he goes, what do I do? Because my wife refused my orders and they warn him of the feminist uprising that will surely take place empire-wide this very day as word spreads that your wife has said no to you. All the women of the empire are going to start saying no to their husbands. This must be stopped. And so these fools advise this foolish king And he sends out an edict to the whole empire in their own languages. A ludicrous new law that says wives must give honor to their husbands. What they mean by that is not something good and biblical. What they mean by that is she must never ever disagree with him no matter what. And you can definitely never say no to him no matter what he is telling you you need to do. No matter how degrading it may be. But the language is, the wives are to give honor to their husbands. And here's what we know, Christians. Wives are to give honor to their husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That is a good teaching. All we did there was read from Ephesians. But this edict is a wicked twisting of this this good command from God and this good creation of God and the way he has created us as male and female and has ordered his good creation. This is a twisting of that. What this is, is an opportunity for men to abuse their wives. Wives, you can never say no to your husband because we know that God's command to to women to submit, wives to submit to their husbands, there's another authority, isn't there, over the husband? Well, not so in the empire of Persia. There's no authority over him except the king, but he's not going to interfere in your, your affairs in your household. Since, since it's Father's Day, let me, let me just say this. This is what the devil does. He takes God's good creation, he perverts it. He takes good things and he twists them and he perverts them. Patriarchy is actually God's good design. It's actually how he created the whole world to work. It's actually how he created things to function, and it is good. It's good for all of us. What we see in this passage and in this story is an example of evil, twisted, perverted patriarchy. It's an outworking of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Men domineering and controlling their wives. That's not patriarchy, that's wickedness. It's sinfulness. Biblical patriarchy... Is this? It's it's men. It's it's husbands. It's fathers humbly, selflessly, lovingly leading their families through hard work and sacrifice and faithfulness and consistency and godly discipleship and instruction. Now we all hear that definition. We go, well, sign me up. That's good. Kids thrive in that. Wives thrive in that. Families thrive in that. The family in in that kind of setup is strong and healthy and peaceful and joyful. But what the world does is it takes that good good creation of God, that good ordering of creation, it twists it up and it turns it upside down and you go, no, we what do we do with the patriarchy? We smash it. We got to get rid of it. We got to hate it. Even Christians. I use that word intentionally because even Christians hear that language and go, oh, I don't think I like, I don't think I like what I'm hearing here. 
Now, granted, have there been some under the name of Christ who have used the word patriarchy and have been giant weirdos? Yes. We used to have some of their books in our library. Of course. But that's, that doesn't change anything about what the Bible teaches or about how God has ordered creation. It doesn't change a thing just because some people have sinned and been twisted and abusive and domineering. The, the world rejects this idea. In the average unbelieving home, and this is true of many professed believers as well, the woman really is looking to usurp her husband's authority. That's also part of the curse of Genesis 3. The curse of Genesis 3 on men, you will be domineering over your wives. The curse of Genesis 3 on women, your desire will be for your husband. It doesn't mean you're, the, the curse of the fall is you just can't keep your hands off him. No, you desire to usurp his authority and his position. That really is commonplace in our world today. And we see the husband either living completely apathetically, which we could say is pathetically. He's passive. He's, he's more of a child than a leader. Or we see the husband who is harsh and domineering, who's, who's trying to assert his authority in fleshly ways so that his family has to walk around on eggshells because of his fragile emotional lack of self-control. Again, more like a child than a leader. But again, that's not God's good design. That's not how God has created this to work. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, as we continue in Ephesians 5, says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So, so Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as as to the Lord. And then he says to the husbands in such tender language to love their wives. Wives are called to submit, yes, Men are called to die. That, that, that's the order of this. We lay our lives down for our families. And our families joyfully, who wouldn't want to submit to that? Someone loves you so much they're going to die for you in all ways, big and small. We don't go like, well, I hate that. I don't like that person. That's domineering. Now back to Esther. The, the, the queen then is deposed. Vashti says no. The edict goes out. The queen's deposed. She never sees the king again. Chapter 2 then is four years later. We jump ahead four years. It's after Ahasuerus, who we know by his Greek name Xerxes best, has a failed invasion of Greece. Um, embarrassingly failed. And he has now returned home and he's feeling sad. He's thinking of Vashti, who's likely his most beautiful of all his women that he owns, his wife Vashti. And he's feeling sad. And he's advised then again by advisors to replace this, this beautiful wife. And the best way to do that is to have a contest. Collect all the beautiful young virgins from across the massive empire. Bring them here to the harem and have a contest where you spend the night with each one of them. And then you can make your decision which one pleased you the most during that night. This would take a couple years. This is a massive amount of, of women spending one night each with the king. It is horrible. It is wicked. It is an obscene plan they have come up with. It has more in common with sex slavery than it does the Miss America pageant. This is a wicked thing that has been devised. Apart from what... Some Christian movies of Esther have led us to believe it's not a nice, quiet, candlelit dinner while you show him your prized Jewish possession or whatever it is that she has. And no, that's not, that's not what's going on. This is depraved. We meet Esther, this beautiful young Jewish woman. And she's part of this contest and she conceals her Jewish identity. She begins to win everyone's favor. She... she gets an upper hand from the eunuch that is in charge of the harem. She ends up winning the whole contest after her one night with the king, and she's made queen, married to this pagan king. We have not from Esther yet seen a hint of righteousness. She belongs to King Yahweh, 
but she's chosen to give herself to King Xerxes. And again, we can sympathize with her, an exiled orphan. She's lost her whole family. She just has her cousin, her older cousin Mordecai, who adopted her and has taken her as his own daughter. She has been raised in a pagan culture. She is immersed in a pagan culture. We can sympathize with her, yet she's responsible before God for every action she takes, for every decision that she makes. At the very least, however paganized and Persianized Esther and Mordecai have been at that point living in Susa, at the very least, she knows enough about the God of her heritage to know this. Marriage to a pagan king is forbidden. Marriage to any pagan outside the people of God, is completely forbidden. And yet again, here's the glorious thing. In all of this, God is working. God is at work in all of it. God will redeem all of it. God will redeem even the sinful choices, working through them. God will redeem and work through even the wickedness of this wicked king. Every seemingly random, coincidental circumstance is sovereignly designed by God and is being used by him in order to bring about the redemption of his people. And that includes us. This story is our story. The, the sovereign, providential hand of God is behind all of it. Every last little detail. That's not just true of this story. It is true of the story. The story of all of history. The story of all of creation. No blade of grass exists beyond the sovereign word of God telling it to be there. Speaking it into existence and then upholding it by the word of his power. And that's not just true of blades of grass. It's even true of the things and the people we see in this story. Proverbs 16 verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. We touched on this last week. We talked some last week about Joseph. And his brothers, and remember the words that Joseph spoke after his brothers had sold him into slavery, after they had nearly murdered him, after Potiphar's wife had falsely accused him, after he had been thrown into prison and then forgotten there, after all of that, after years and years of suffering and evil done to him, Joseph says these words to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Again, same event. Both had purpose, the, the brothers and God. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Or consider Job, who had every earthly prop ripped out from under him, lost his family, lost his possessions, all of his riches covered in sores and boils. In complete misery, his wife was not such a delight. Better to live on the corner of a rooftop than with a quarrelsome wife. Uh, and that's Job's wife. But after God had spoken to him and questioned him, Job says this in Job chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. And he never has to ask anyone's permission. All things come about because of the definite and perfect plan of God. We have to remember that. It's not just the definite plan of God, it is the perfect plan of God. He, he tempts no man with sin. We need to be 100% clear on that. He tempts no man with sin. What do we see in James? It's not that God tempts us with sin. It's not that God forces anyone to sin. James says every man is tempted into sin when he is lured away by his own lusts, by his own desires. We do what we do because we want what we want. We don't have to do anything more than look back on our own track record and any time we've ever sinned and we can follow the path of our thinking. We wanted something and so we did something about it. God cannot sin, but he does use sinners to bring about his good plans. His plans are always good, always unfailingly wonderful. 
We saw that again last week as we considered the sovereign hand of God in bringing about the death of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the greatest evil action in all of history. The Lord of glory who was crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. As Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that was all according to the definite plan of God. It was all for God's glory. It was all for our good. And and all of life is this grand story that God is masterfully writing. It is this grand story of God working to accomplish his perfect plans. And Esther is just one microcosm of that story. It's just one episode in that story. It's a case study of real people, real sinners. And the often subtle, often silent, seemingly, work of God in and through all things. As we see in this story, even when when some pagan empire rules the entire world, our God is on his throne. He is sitting there in complete control. He is sitting there without an ounce of anxiety. The hearts of men, the hearts of kings even, flow through his hand. He does with them whatever he pleases. None can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? And that is every bit, brothers and sisters, as true today as it was in the story of Esther. It's God who brought about the Babylonian Empire to conquer Judah. That's why we're able to read the prophets warning them, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's what the Lord is going to do. And it's God who brought about the Persian Empire that conquered Babylon. And it's God who would bring about the Greek Empire that was going to conquer the Persian Empire. And it is God who has brought about all the countries and rulers in the world up to this very minute. He is ruling over all of it. He is ordaining all of it in every place, in every time. God is orchestrating everything. And that is the best news in the whole world. As we look at this world that we live in, with all of its wickedness, with all of its rebellion, with foolish and wicked rulers, with civilization that seems like it is crumbling at its core, with unjust laws that lead to the murder of millions of children, with rampant sexual perversion and insanity in our culture that is even being promoted and celebrated in our schools and in our public spaces. As we look around at, at, at churches, that, that even this morning, the pulpits are filled with ear-tickling, biblically unqualified women claiming to be preachers of the word. And cowardly men, effeminate men, self-seeking men, unqualified men, twisting the truth, devouring as, as wolves the flock of God. We recognize as we look around at all of that, in one sense, this is the world we made. We we made things the way that they are. This This is the world we brought upon ourselves. This is the world we sought after. This is the world that because we worship false gods, those false gods have delivered to us. This is exactly what we were aiming for and we have hit it. In that sense, it's the world we made, but... But here's what's true. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. We meant something in it. God meant something, means something in it. He is working. There's only one real king in the story of Esther. There's only one real king in the story of all of history. And that king is on his throne at this very moment. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His rule is forever and ever over every person, over every animal, over every nation, over every spiritual power and over every earthly power, over every single star in the distant cosmos, every drop of rain, every blade of grass. He is the sovereign Lord over all of it. And here's the thing. We are his people. He's our father, this God, who reigns over all. 
We're his eternally, and he is at work in all things, at all times, for our good. Now, what could give us more confidence than that? So with that introduction over, that brief introduction, we're ready to get into our passage. Some of you are like, it's Father's Day. Do not do this to us. We have plans. I know. We find ourselves in this little insert into our story. It's really the high point of the story before the fall. You know, you're, you're watching a movie or you're reading a novel and things are going really good. The main character, like everything's coming together and everything's going great. And what do you know? You know that conflict is coming. Trouble is coming. This isn't going to be uh, an episode of Strawberry Shortcake where there's no conflict and nothing happens. Conflict is coming. Trouble is coming. Things are going to get a lot worse before they can be resolved. But it is that resolve. It's that turning of the tables. It's that redemption that makes the whole story so much sweeter. Makes the whole thing that much more beautiful. And there is a dark storm coming in the book of Esther. In fact, in the light of all the drama of the chapters that are to come, it's easy to overlook and forget about this little passage. But everything turns on this passage. This this passage is a seed planted by God himself that he's going to providentially use to turn the tables on his enemies. So look at verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So despite this queen contest being over, this one night with all these women, the king's lusts are still fully intact. Now some time has passed. Between, we don't read this in the text, but between verse 18 and verse 19, there's been some passage of, of time. We know by the time we get to chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, that in fact, five years have passed since our passage last week. So this is somewhere in that five-year window, this is happening. Might be closer to the five-year part. It says, virgins were gathered a second time. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that means. Did he have another contest? I don't think that's what's going on. What we do know is this. He's keeping all these women. It's not as though he meets Esther. He's blown away by her and he goes, you can all go home. This was a fool's error. I should never have done this. I'm a one woman man. No, he's keeping them. They're his. These are his property now. These are his concubines. They are objects for his pleasure. This second gathering, we don't know exactly what's going on. He's he's possibly just moving them from one harem into another where I'm going to keep you forever. Could be for a ceremonial parade of some sort. Some have suggested maybe this is is the celebration of, of Esther's. Esther's coronation as queen. Whatever it was, while this gathering is going on, we read Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate is this, this large building at the entrance of the palace complex. Again, when we, when we see the citadel of Susa in that story, that's the part. It's the part of the capital city that is the palace complex. And Mordecai is there sitting at this large entrance where legal matters and commercial transactions are taken care of there at the gate. That language, Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, it's a way of saying he's got an official position in the kingdom now. It's likely a job he received since Esther has been made queen. Probably some kind of government security, some kind of low-level administrator, but whatever it is, the language there, seated at the king's gate, is it's similar language if we would say a judge is seated on the bench. It's the idea. You are there in the official capacity of your job. Verse 20 says, Esther had not made her kindred or her people known as Mordecai had commanded her for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she had been brought up by him. Esther does whatever her adoptive father asks her to do. This older cousin who has adopted her as his own daughter, she obeys him even now that she's the queen. And father's an ancient Israel had near absolute authority over their daughters. But when that daughter was married, that dynamic changed drastically. And most of that authority was limited greatly after that. And yet we see Esther still being submissive to Mordecai. That's going to come into play as this story goes on. 
And Mordecai has definitely not been the perfect father. He is not the one we want to model ourselves after on this Father's Day. Esther is in the position she's in because of Mordecai. He shouldn't have let Esther be in this queen competition. Now, now what do you do if the king demands your beautiful young virgin daughter to be in his contest and you say no? Well, your life may be on the line. Well, fine. It's a hard thing. But he should never have let her do this. He should have hidden her or something. Even though that would have been dangerous. Really, they shouldn't be in Susa at all. They should be in Jerusalem. But but although they are clearly Persianized, they are clearly paganized, Esther seems to have at least known the Ten Commandments. She seems to, at a a minimum, whatever their lives look like, she is obeying the commandment to honor your father and mother. Her father and mother are dead. Mordecai has taken her as his own daughter, and she honors him. She obeys him. Even after she's married, she is honoring him. And, And kids... Kids in the room, these aren't great role models for us. But there is a biblical principle here that we ought to pay close attention to. There's, There's something to be learned and applied to your lives. God commands you kids to honor your parents. And your parents aren't perfect any more than Mordecai was imperfect. But here's what God says in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The truth is, kids, the most important thing you can do on any given day is to honor your father and mother. What is the way you can best serve the Lord on a... a, day-by-day basis. It's to honor your father and mother, to do what they say, to do it right away, to do it cheerfully and not angrily, to not give them that, oh, as you stomp off. to, To honor them. When you do that, it pleases God. When you do that, it pleases God. And you need to hear this, kids. When you don't do that, you are disobeying God. You're not just showing your little emotions to your parents. You are disobeying God when you do that. And so fathers and mothers, here's what that means for us. If that's true, if we're going to tell our kids something like that, your instruction, your commands must be biblical. They must be good. They must be wise. They must be God honoring, lest God forbid obedience to you would lead your children to sin. Esther, at this point in this story, she obeys her earthly father, her adoptive cousin, Mordecai. And she, in obedience to him, has kept her people, her kindred, a secret. She has not let them know that she is a Jew. There may have been some earthly wisdom in that instruction, in that command from Mordecai. I mean, she did, after all, rise to the pinnacle of worldly success, taking his advice Following what he did, she became the queen of the Persian Empire. But this instruction lacked the truest wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. With obedience to his good commands. Verse 21, in those days Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, big, thin, and terish. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai's seated at the gate. He's doing his job. These two guards, these two eunuchs, their two officials begin to plot together. They're angry with the king and they want to kill him. And it's not surprising that someone would want to murder Xerxes. If you were here for our first week and we just gave a little two-minute synopsis of some of this man's insanity. He was exceedingly wicked, immoral, selfish. Xerxes, in fact was murdered by one of his officials with the help of a eunuch. That's how his life ended. But but no matter his wickedness, what these two men are plotting is an evil thing. It is still wrong to murder, even if the person you're going to murder is evil. It's still wrong to do it. Verse 22, And this, the, the plot, came to the knowledge of Mordecai, 
And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. Mordecai finds out about this plot. It might have been his job to find out about plots like this. At any rate, he does what any good man should do, and he reports this murderous plot to the proper authorities. In this case, it's the queen herself, because the queen being Esther, Mordecai has access to her, and we're told Esther tells the king of the plot, and she tells it in Mordecai's name. She makes sure that Mordecai gets the credit for having uncovered this assassination plot. Verse 23, and the affair was investigated, found to be so. The men were both hanged in the gallows. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. In the presence of the king. The matter is investigated. The men are found to be guilty. Because their conspiracy to assassinate the king, they are executed. It says, hanged on the gallows. And we'll see gallows figuring into the story of Esther. People were never hung by the neck in ancient Persia. That wasn't a thing that they did. We think gallows and we picture you know, a hanging platform where somebody's going to be hung. That's not what the Persians did. Gallows literally means tree or wooden object. In this case, it's wooden object. To be hung is to be impaled on a wooden stake. That's what the Persians did. The Persians did this often. This was the common practice in Persia, to impale a victim, to make them a spectacle. It was not only intensely, excruciatingly painful But it was a warning, and it was a final shame. Warning to all who might do likewise, and one final way of shaming this individual. The Persians would even take a dead body and impale it, and just stick it out for the public to see. It was just a a way of shaming the person. It's recorded then, it says, in the Chronicles, the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. So, so not just not just have they recorded the the plot of the assassination and the execution of these two men. Mordecai's service to the king was recorded in this book, but we'll find out later. No reward was given to Mordecai. That is highly unusual in the Persian Empire. They were sticklers about this. If you did something for the king, they were diligent about rewarding their benefactors. So this is even recorded. Not only did the king overlook doing something for Mordecai when when this plot was uncovered, but even when it was recorded in the presence of the king, he still overlooked somehow rewarding him. This is highly unusual in the Persian Empire. But it just so happens that the reward is overlooked. This is how the whole book of Esther turns. It just so happens Ahasuerus got a terrible idea at his drunken party to mistreat and parade his wife around. It just so happened that she had enough courage or was just in a certain mood that day to tell him no. It just so happened that because of that, he deposed her forever. It just so happened that he decided to have this wicked contest bringing in all these women and girls from across the empire. It just so happens that Mordecai and Esther are living in Susa instead of obeying God and returning to Jerusalem. It just so happens that Esther is beautiful and was among the virgins picked for the contest. It just so happens that favor was given to her by all, that advantages were given to her in this contest. It just so happens that the king chose Esther over all those other women, maybe a thousand women. It just so happened that Mordecai was given a job at the king's gate. It just so happened that his beloved daughter, adoptive daughter Esther, was in the perfect position when he uncovered the plot to make sure the king knew it was Mordecai who did this. It just so happened that this was recorded in the king's book. And it just so happened that the reward for Mordecai was uncharacteristically overlooked. And it just as so is going to happen later in the story that the king on the most crucial night where the whole story turns is going to not be able to sleep. And he's going to have the stories of the Chronicles read to him. And he's going to hear again how Mordecai saved his life. And this seemingly random detail of the story... Mordecai uncovering a plot, sparing the king. It is going to become the reason behind the first visible evidence we'll see in this story that God is turning the tables 
against his enemies and in favor of the Jews. What these two eunuchs meant for evil, God meant for good. They meant something. And God meant something. God God is unfolding this story with meticulous detail. He is writing it perfectly. And we have all been written into this story. You have been giving a speaking line in this story. You're a real player in this. We are all children of the true king. Who's the author of this story. We must play our part Faithfully. We, we see with Mordecai, Mordecai acted faithfully here. And if Mordecai had not acted faithfully, when the conflict comes in chapter 3, the end result would be every Jew throughout the entire empire is slaughtered. And ultimately, if we follow that through, it means that Christ is not born. That the Lord Jesus Christ would not have come. Had Mordecai not acted Had his actions not been recorded, every Jew would have been killed. Literally, no one would be saved. No one could be saved. We would not be sitting in this room. We would have no knowledge of God. We would have no hope of eternal life. See how meticulously God is watching over his word to perform it. This whole thing hinges on the shoulders of an orphan girl who we have seen is not the most faithful person in the world. She's married to a pagan king at a minimum. This whole story that turns on one seeming coincidence after another, and yet what we know is this. It is God who's orchestrating everything. None of this is random chance. None of this just so happened. Nothing is left up to luck. Nothing is wishful thinking. History is not random. It is not beholden to the whims of so-called human free will. Not one single drop of rain or ray of sun or single snowflake is random. And so you can bet your life that God has not left salvation up to chance. He's Lord of all. He is the author of the story. And he has weaved into that story the redemption of his people. People as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars in the universe. And ultimately his plan will bring him unrivaled glory. The very glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our guilt. Who bore our condemnation. Who was hung on a tree for our treasonous crimes. And in him and him alone will anyone be saved. Ever could anyone be redeemed. In in him we have full redemption though. Both now and forever. That's the mind blowing mercy and love and power of our God. It's astounding that level of wisdom. It is astounding that level of power. It is astounding, that level of grace, that level of love. And friend, he brought you here. As surely he, as he put Mordecai at that king's gate on that day where he had to be. He's placed you here, not just here in this room. He's determined the times and the places in which we live for his good purposes. Is your trust in this sovereign God growing? Even in the midst of a pagan world. Are you increasing in your confidence in him and his good purposes? Or are you so caught up with the things you see going on around you that you're sure the sky is falling? May this truth, as we study this strange book, may it provoke in you Perseverance in times of trouble. Prayer to this sovereign king who is Lord over all. Who else would we run to in our trouble? Who else would we run to in our pain? But this sovereign God who's who's writing this whole story, who is working out his good purposes in all things, who has promised that he is at work for our good if we are in Christ. To whom else would we run but this sovereign king who channels the hearts of men in his hands, who, who controls every ray of sun and every drop of rain and every blade of grass. We have direct access to him. 
the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead, dwells within you, Christian. It's this God who rules over all things that has done this. May it provoke us to faithfulness, regardless of the earthly circumstances, regardless of the earthly consequences. And may it provoke us to unshakable hope in God. And to greater love for one another as the people of God. If this God has seen fit to redeem you. then how could I but love you? Let's pray together. Almighty God we do thank you for your word. Lord the encouragement that comes. From seeing your sovereign rule over all things. Even in this book. That never names you. That doesn't spell these things out. We just see one thing after another that that must play out in meticulous detail. Exactly the way that it does. And Lord, because you've given us so much more than just the book of Esther. We have the whole counsel of your word. We We are able to understand what's really happening. And that is that you, the sovereign God who reigns and rules over all. Are guiding history and even the hearts of men. To accomplish your good purposes, ultimately to unite all things to yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice that you have wrapped us up in those good purposes, that you have saved us in Christ, that, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived in our place and obeyed in our place and died in our place and bore our condemnation and gave to us in exchange his spotless righteousness, that you have, have wrapped us in Christ up into your grand plan of all of history and all of creation such that we have such mind-blowing security that we can rest in you. Cease from our strivings. I pray, God, that you would cause our our hope in you to grow, our confidence in you to grow, our love for you to grow, our worship of you to grow, our love and fellowship with one another to grow, our boldness to grow, our faithfulness to grow. Lord, would you... Make us faithful as you fulfill your promises to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Would you make us faithful and use us towards that good and glorious end, we pray. For your name's sake, for the eternal joy of all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.